Hello and welcome to Under the Skin, starring, starring, starring me, Russell Brown. Oh, Russell making Brand. the stings this week. What? You've not made them? They're what going in this week's podcast. Week? This, the one where you go, I need the sting is coming out this week. Ah, yeah, so this one will have them in as well? Yeah. I can't wait to hear them. Do you know what? I'm going to listen to this podcast, Jen, to check you're doing your something. I've I think you'll just... be excited. Will you? Because the plan has will been I? hatched, yeah. Who did, did you make them yourself? I haven't made them yet, oh, but there is a collaborator a involved. <laughs> have you have you collaborating? Yeah, I'm collaborating. Who with? Someone who's won a lot of awards. <laughs> 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 have you got a new boyfriend or girlfriend? What's going no, on? No, I don't. Just because Ollie did the last thing and he happened to be my boyfriend. <laughs> I know you operate in a blessedly small social circle. Yeah, I'm not texting anyone on my phone. There's no one talking to me. Good. I'm glad no one's talking to you, James, because you know why I'm glad? Because that's one less human that has to suffer you. Now, this is a good podcast. It's with Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's got to be a professor or something, hasn't she? This woman, yeah. she's unbelievable. Seven and a half lessons about the brain and how emotions are made is her book. She's professor oh yeah, of psychology at Northeastern University, where she focuses on effective science. She's also held all sorts of prestigious uh, positions in the science community. And I found her to be a wonderful and sort of captivating educator. Did you find her to be captivating? Yeah, she's a storyteller. She's a storyteller. And you'll love her book is my my thought on the matter. Okay, before we get into that podcast, let's do some comments from Merlin Sheldrake. Oh, but have we, be, have we been in the banter decanter? I don't know. Well, well I the, started off bantering. Yeah, you're bantering from the beginning. You've been obnoxious. <laughs> That's because I felt attacked. <laughs> is that how you respond to it? Yeah. So you've made some stings, have you? No, they haven't been made yet. But, yeah, but by now, yeah. there'll be a sting, right? If I was to go, right, play the stings one by one, yeah. you could do it now. Banter yeah. decanter. Banter decanter. Shout-outs. Shout-outs. That's your one hip-hop of my favourite section. That's, yeah. coming, <laughs> that's coming up in a minute. So, but now it's comments. Right, we've had some banter with Jenny. Have Jenny, have you been trotting around Norwich with some poor sod? No, I spent the weekend with uh, some dogs and then Better. persons that's older than me. <laughs> the parents of your landlord? The, well, they are my landlord. They're not the parents. Of... Jen, I don't want to get bogged down <laughs> in the bureaucracy <laughs> of what you call your private life, but I call a prison on the coast. And frankly, one you shouldn't be allowed day release from. Oh. <laughs> I'm only joking. Now then, let's actually read that's some banter there. Banter decanter, canter, canter. <laughs> Decanter. Comments now on Merlin Sheldrake. Now time for comments. The video's doing well on YouTube. Yeah. Do you know, did we ask enough about psychedelics and the mind of God and all that? Uh, you tried to um, ask him and then... Oh yeah, he said And then, then you abruptly changed the subject. It's a shame really, because I like talking about that, don't you? He spoke about getting taking LSD in the lab. Oh, yeah, that was a good bit. Yeah. I like that LSD in the lab bit. He... Steph Hoy. <laughs> <laughs> the first comment is Steph Hoy. Wait. No comment from Steph. <laughs> oh, no, we've lost our main yeah, listener. Steph. Steph, come back. Give us a comment. We miss you. We love you. We hope you <laughs> hope you sign up to the mailing list. Go over to russellbrand.com. Belong to the elite, the cabal, the community, the nexus, the collective. Join up. You'll get all sorts of information. I do free Zoom calls. They're a great deal of fun. And Steph Hoy, I'm looking forward to meeting you there. Zazil. Merlin, he totally looks like a young wizard. He reminded me of, oh, wow, I just broke my dream. I met Jim Morrison what? in my dream last night. 
He was older than me. He had a I motorbike. He would have been older than you. Yeah, when we died at 27. <laughs> Do you age after death? Maybe. If you believe in consciousness. <laughs> Look, I'm just saying I met Jim Morrison in a dream. What have you done? I've been to his grave. I've been there. Pair of shades. Yeah. But he didn't bother to look at Oscar Wilde, did you? Or I showed did, yeah, of course I but did. But just went to Jim Morrison's and no, went straight back, uh, hopped Oscar straight Wilde back on the bus. Oscar Wilde would have been my first. Yeah, I, uh, mine as well. I was well, not from... on a bus. Yeah, but you were going around Paris on a bus. No, putting, putting bubble gum on the windows of France's great no. public utilities. Weren't you? No, I was staying in that, what is it called? Those numbers? The areas? The Bastille? The East District. No, no, they call those sections. What did they call them? I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know about France. I'm scared of France, is the truth. It's because you're English. I'm scared of... We've won them wars. But my point <laughs> is that I'm just scared of being in France. The feeling of Why? being there. What do you say? They don't... You know, they... Why don't Salute. they just speak English? <laughs> no, I feel... No, I'll tell you what it is. I feel ignorant. I feel like, uh, I, I, feel like I should speak... I think I should speak English, Spanish, Italian... Mandarin, <laughs> Japanese. I love French. Do you speak it? It was the one I chose to learn. That's the. I can see by the way you've answered that question. <laughs> that the answer is no, you don't, Jen. I can say something. Go on, say a thing. Hmm. That's not French. <laughs> Anyone could make that noise. It kind of is French. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Earthy Shumama. Hello. <laughs> Earthy Shrew Mama. That's a satisfying... Even that looks nice on the page because you've got them double O's and all them M's. Earthy Shrew Mama says, Merlin.Sheldrake is absolutely fantastic. His book, Entangled Life, is absolutely wonderful. I highly recommend it. I'm so happy to see more and more people waking up to the powers of fungus. Do you think that Shrek is nicked off Fungus the Bogeyman by Raymond Briggs when we were kids? Gal? Uh. <laughs> Do you think Shrek is nicked off yeah. Fungus the... He is, isn't he? Yeah. Shrek! Fungus the Bogeyman. Do you know who Fungus the Bogeyman is? No. Do you know who Fungus the Bogeyman is? Remember those Raymond yeah. Briggs books, Snowman, all that, Father Twilight Christmas? Snowman. Walking in here. Yeah. Do you know? You're South African, you're young, you're young, you don't know. <laughs> well, it's something to consider. Look at his little trumpet ear holes. Look at his fact he's into disgusting stuff. Annabelle, you're a young person. Why don't you Google Fungus the Bogeyman and have a look at that? And it's, this is IP from the late Gareth? 70s, early yeah, 80s. Like Raymond Briggs. <laughs> Stolen. Stolen from... Uh, well, no, I love Mike Myers, actually, and pr probably he's involved in the creation of Shrek, and I admire him and respect him. But I'm just saying, it's interesting, isn't it? Perhaps he's part of the archetype, the green man, the, uh, you know, sort of the bogeyman. I don't know. Sorry, I got sidetracked. Um, so, uh, Lady Baroness, elegant and insightful conversation. Thank you. Oh, let's make banter decanter a thing. Well, here's the uh, here's the <laughs> jingle. <laughs> I'm pressing my. I'm running the desk. I'm riding the desk like back in the day when I was a DJ and I didn't run the desk. Then let me tell you. Banter decanter. There you go. Banter decanter. Time now for listener shoutouts. Listener shoutouts. First one, shout out, shout outs. Time now for Mashash. Well, it's just this is her shout out. 
All I want to say is, Russell, a heartfelt thank you. That's nice. Thank you, Mishash. Stephanie, thank you for being a beacon of light. No problem. During the pandemic, I've appreciated the YouTube videos. They're good. You should watch them. We do three a week. They're very intelligent. We've got some real whoppers, I'd call them, this week. Real whoppers. We've got weighty, weighty subjects. The thing, if I spoke like this, this was actually my normal talking voice. Do you think it would restrict me in my business as a show business professional? Yeah, it highlights the phlegm a bit too much. Highlights Look, you just phlegm. did it there. And you sucked it back in. <laughs> you better concentrate, Jen, at work. That's what I'm saying to you. <laughs> you sucked it back in. <laughs> uh, I've downloaded the tapping solution, says Stephanie. I have 37 years of recovery. Bloody hell, well done. And love the way you have helped destigmatize addiction. I can't believe Jen would choose such a flashing I didn't. comment. Who did? Charlie. She, well just done, she just shared it. It's like nine shoes from the... And then yeah, that's why they're comments. promoting Merlin Sheldrake's book instead of mine. Revolu revelation. I've already read Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs> revelation. Uh, re revelation. What a cracking out, out audible... Now. That's your promo, is it? Out now. It is Audible now. original. It's yeah. an audible original. The link is in the description. You should get it. It's brilliant. I know I'm asking for a lot of your money. If you can't afford it, don't worry about it. I'm so sorry. I keep asking. Uh, look, I'm also a therapist, continues Stephanie. And I tell folks I work with to read your book. Thank you. Basically, I'm a fan. Thank you. After the Zoom sesh with Nick Ortner, you felt like family. I'm grateful for you and your wife, who is an angel. Gosh, even though it's my lovely wife. I mean, this is incredible. Do you know what we should do? Is we should isolate that bit where people are sing where that singing song happened with that woman singing that um, Edith Piaf song. That was, it was beautiful. Have a listen to this Zoom call clip. I'll give you a song. song then. Sing us a song you fancy. Okay. Les yeux qui font baisser le mieux, un rire qui se perd sous sa bouche. Voilà le portrait sans retouche de l'amour que j'appartiens. Quand il me prend dans ses bras, il me parle tout bas. Je vois la vie en rose. That's just some petit peu. That's lovely. Well Thank done. You. If you want to be part of that, you can sign up to my mailing list. Go to russellbrand.com, join the mailing list alliance. What's that word there, Jen? Click. The last word? Click. Click. Exclusive videos you'll get on there. Uh, you'll not find anywhere else. They're made just for you. We're currently doing a series on the world's great thinkers. If you'll get a free chapter of my book, Revelation, you get sent a free chapter from Revelation. See if you like it or not before you commit. Invites to free live events where you can learn well-being techniques that can support you in these mad times and be the first to hear about all my upcoming events and projects. Also, check out my YouTube channel that I've got. I've told you about that. It's good. Go on it. And follow me on social media. Now let's listen to our friend, Lisa Feldman Barrett. What a wonderful human being. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Lisa Feldman Barrett, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Lisa, I'm a person that has felt for much of my life that I'm controlled by emotion for negative and positive. Sometimes I feel that, you know, almost part of creativity 
is that we're governed by emotion. That emotion is like meteorology. It's beyond us. It's a, a weather system that we're you know we're tossed around by by its storms. What does your work in um, psychology and I, I and presumably neurology suggest uh, about that feeling I have? I know that feeling <laughs> as a person also. Um, what I would say is that um, in science, in our science, we like to make a distinction between feelings that come from the way that your brain is regulating your body. So your brain is always regulating the systems of your body. Your body's always sending information about what's going on in this whole, there's a whole drama going on right now that we're mostly unaware of, ho hopefully. Um, but it's continually sending information back to the brain. And we're not really wired to experience every tug of a muscle and every ex you know beat of a heart. What we feel is um, a weather pattern, as you would call it, sometimes storms and sometimes tranquil ponds, but it's really, this ongoing feeling of feeling pleasant, feeling unpleasant, feeling comfortable, feeling uncomfortable, feeling worked up, feeling calm. It can be very mild. It can be very intense. It can be, you know, front and center in your consciousness. It can be lingering in the background, but it's really always there. And we call this affect or, you know, you might call it mood. If I were speaking to a friend, I would call it mood. Um, but the scientific term for it is affect with an A, and it's distinct from emotion in the sense that it's always with us whenever we see, whenever we think, whenever we um, act. It's really, you know, the brain's always controlling the body and the body's always sending information back to the brain. So we're always in some state of feeling. It's emotions are moments when the brain, your brain constructs a larger story about what those feelings mean. Um, what are they um, telling you? Um, how are they related to what's going on around you in the world in some way? Um, and we tend to construct those stories really automatically when, in, when affect is very strong, when there's been a big disruption um, um, and it grabs our attention and it feels like it sort of takes us over. This process of hmm, unconscious inner narrativization, you say is, what are the component parts involved in this, Lisa? What are, What's happening hormonally? What's happening synaptically? And what is happening culturally? Well, you've just spanned a huge, um, you know, a, a huge... Um, dimension of um, importance, I would say. So let's start with what's happening in the moment, and then we'll get to what's happening culturally. But you're, you're right on the money that that culture is very important here. So if you take your brain's perspective for a second, it's trapped in a dark, silent box called your skull. And it's receiving sense data sights and sounds and smells and, you know, sensations from the body continuously. These sense, these sense data are the outcomes of some changes in the world or in the body. 
your brain doesn't have access to those. It only has access to the outcomes. So, for example, if you hear a loud bang, what is that loud bang? What do you need to do about it? Is it a door, a, you know, a door slamming? Is it a car backfiring? Is it um, someone dropping a box? If you were in the United States, you know, you would ask, is it a gunshot? I mean, it could be any a of those bit things. earlier in the list as well. Yeah, well, yeah. The interesting thing is, I have to say that even, you know, I'm from Canada originally, and I didn't ever see a gun, like live looking at a gun in a store even, until I moved to the United States. And when the first time I heard gunfire, I, I didn't know what it was. I was experientially blind to it because it doesn't sound the way it sounds on television and in the movies. And, um, and actually, that's my main point, that, um, that most of the time what's happening is your brain has to guess at the causes of those sense data. Philosophers call this an inverse problem. You know the outcome, but you don't know the cause. And so luckily your brain has one other source of information, and that's your past experience. Your brain is basically a repository it doesn't store past experience like a vessel. It recreates past experience. So when you remember something, your brain's actually, neurons are talking to each other to reinstate a pattern of neural activity that is very similar to when you first experienced something. And so what your brain is doing is basically asking itself, well, the last time I was in a situation like this, when my body was in this state and I encountered these sense data, what did it mean? What caused it? What did I do about it last time? Actually, the words literal meaning is describing, as you articulate it, precisely what's happening. It is remembering. It's reconstructing that reality. Exactly. exactly. And this is, go this is ongoing every waking moment of your life. And you're completely unaware of it for most of the time. And in fact, if you, if your brain can't remember, if it can't reconstruct a, a representation that is similar to the past, you'll be experientially blind. So you'll hear sounds that are a language and you won't understand them, or you'll hear, um, you know, music, but it will sound like noise to you, or you know, I have these images I sometimes use when I'm giving talks where I'll present something. It's called a Mooney image. It's like black and white blobs and people can't, they, you know, they're experientially blind. They, they can't see what it, what it is. They can't see anything in the image. And then I'll show them an image and then, then I show them the blobs again and then poof, they see it. But of course, what are they seeing? They're seeing lines and so on that their brain is conjuring. They're not on the screen, right? They're using, they're filling in, um, um, from past experience. Everything we experience is some combination of what's going on right now and what's happened in the past. And so that's the first part, I think, of the answer to your question. The second part is that, um, you know, little infant brains are not miniature adult brains. They're brains that wire themselves to the environment that has been curated for them. And so 
In fact, brains don't finish wiring themselves without out input from the outside world that teaches the brain how to finish its wiring. And some of that input is physical, like like literally visual, you know, light has to hit the, your retina of your eye in order for the brain to finish wiring its visual system. But some of that input is social, it's cultural. It's the, it's the um, cultural norms and practices that we um, use to curate environments for our infants and also for each other, right? And so, for example, do you carry your infant on the back, on the front? Do you co-sleep with your infant? Does the infant sleep alone? Like these are small things, but they actually make a difference in the wiring of that infant's brain. And so really what's happening is the, the, the brain is sort of bootstrapping into itself the regularities of the world that it's exposed to. And so culture is a major carrier of information that can transmit um, stuff from one generation to the next. Or, you know, if you and I went to live in a different culture for a period of time, we would have to learn the practices of that culture. And that means rewiring our brains to, to be able to make meaning in and, you know, regulate our actions and live comfortably in that culture. So your past experience doesn't just come from your lived experience. It also, it does come from your lived experience, very much so since you're, since you were an infant, but also it comes from the movies that you watch and the TV shows and the books that you read and the people that you talk to. And all of these things actually make up this repository of past experience that your brain can use to make meaning in the present. That's pretty heavy, Lisa. So in a way, in a sense, there is almost, and you know, sort of physics bears this out to a point, doesn't it? No objective relation. There is no objective reality. There are a series of fluid, a superstate of fluid potential relationships that create apparently objective reality. Yeah, I would say that um, I think the, you know, I recently became familiar with Carlos Rivelli's. Um, yeah, that's um, who I'm refer- referencing. Yeah. So he has this really nice way of talking about quantum mechanics, um, um, about how signals don't have objective meaning in and of their own right. They're, they're, they're made meaningful by their relationship to something else. And um, I think that's a, a, in general, a nice way um, to think about it. Now, you know, when, when we say something like that, you know, a fairly curmudgeon person might say, you know, um, what do you mean there's no objective reality? You know, like I can't fly, I can't walk through walls, I can't eat glass for dinner, you know, like those, that's objective reality. And yeah, there are constraints, you know, there are constraints, right? Let, um, um, but, but a lot of, um, but basically, you know, how do I say this? It, sometimes scientists will say, uh, the brain is running a model of the world in, you know, inside. But the brain isn't running a model of the world. The brain is running a model of the body. And it's running a model of the sensory surfaces of the body. So what it gets from the retina, what it gets from the cochlea, what it gets from your taste buds, what it gets from your olfactory bulb, 
what it gets from the, you know, all the little sensory, um, uh, little sensory organs in your body. That's what your brain is running a model of. That's the only way that we can um, learn about the world around us. Sometimes we build tools to let us see further or deeper or differently, right? So we can have microscopes that can let us see stuff that we couldn't see normally with our naked eye or, you know, like infrared special telescopes or whatever. We can, we can extend that, but that's still, that's still what we're doing is we're sort of using tools to translate information so that our sensory services can get to it. But then we have to make meaning of it. And some meaning is constrained, is constrained. Um, you know, it's tr you and I could decide that we could fly, but that doesn't actually mean that we can. Um, you and I could decide that COVID isn't contagious, and that doesn't really mean that it it, it isn't. You know, like COVID virus doesn't really care what we think; it just cares whether you know somebody has a nice wet set of lungs. Um, but there are other things that we can agree on. And we can completely construct reality, like make something exist that didn't exist before, just by this meaning-making process that we're talking about. And um, humans do this. We all do this really um, quite regularly and without much awareness that we're doing it. Mm. Yes. I like that your um, reference to the systems of ampl amplification that nevertheless have to ultimately pass through the um, rubric of comprehension that the experience uh, um, is the you know, I know sovereign on sits at. Um, uh, what, where do you arrive, Lisa, when it comes to sort of matters of selfhood, the soul, um, personal identity? given what you are, it seems to me, largely discussing is the mutability of the experience of reality outside of certain physical laws that are, you know, relevant here geographically with this particular part of the cosmos, with this particular type of intelligence, with this particular understanding of the space-time right. deal. Right, 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 right. Where do you sit with what is, when you talk about, you know, the, the, the model of the body, what is it that's making this model of the body? What is the nexus or hub of this experience uh, that you are describing. And I'll note that you had a sip of your water there. You know, it's been a, it's, um, it's been an interesting morning. I'm, I've been really Why? looking forward. What have you been doing? When I'm, well, um, I was really looking forward to talking to you. Um, but you. then, um, you know, one of my graduate students was hospitalized. Oh, shit, uh, I'm sorry. And um, so right. that just, uh, I I think she'll be okay, but we don't really know what's wrong yet. So, and um, what do you do was, with a thing like that as a person that looks at reality in this way? What do you do with your own emotions of sadness or fear now? What do you do? Well, this is taking us in a whole different direction. We, you know, we could have a, I could have a rant, really, about the medical establishment, but now's not the time. I, I prefer to answer your time. other. I, I prefer to answer your other question, but um, but actually, what I do in 
in such cases is I'm honestly in, in I try to um, remain curious and collect information. I actually that's the best thing that you can do in a situation like this. Um, and I try to remember and this is going to sound kind of weird, maybe, but it is actually true. <laughs> um, you know, your brain is always making sense of the sense data from your body. When things are uncertain, there are certain chemicals that are released that make it, when things are uncertain, there are certain chemicals released and that causes your heart to race and things like that because it makes it easier for your brain to learn something new. Okay. And um, we experience that and make meaning of it as anxiety. So what I try to do is just deconstruct it and say, okay, I'm high arousal right now and it feels really unpleasant and it's because there's a lot of uncertainty and what I need to do is collect more information before I, um, you know, make a decision about how to act. And when I, right before um, COVID, right before the, the um, announcement of the pandemic, I was actually in um, New Zealand at the time and my daughter was flying. So we have this thing that we did every year while she was in college that she would meet me somewhere. And then for spring break, she would spend her spring break with me, I would arrange a talk and then, you know, she would meet me and we would have a vacation together. And so she was in the air, flying to New Zealand um, from Boston, um, as things were starting to really get worse. And I was trying to figure out, you know, what we should do. Like, should we, should we just, should I meet her at the airport and we should just turn around and come back or what should we do? And so I called my husband and I said, I'm feeling really high arousal and it's very unpleasant. Like an average normal person would have said, I'm really anxious. Right. But I was like, you know, doing my, you know, living my like scientific life. And I, you know, so he under, he's been, we've been together for a long time. He, he can translate, you know, and what I was resisting doing was um, allowing my brain to construct anxiety because when you construct an emotion and you're making meaning out of sensations as an emotion, that's also a plan for action. And maybe there are other actions I might want to take, right? So Instead of panicking, maybe the thing to do is to try to collect as much information as I can so that it can make an informed decision. That's really actually hard to do when you're really worked up and kind of jittery. But it's a little easier to do when you don't, when you, when you have a little bit of control over, over how you're making meaning of your own sensations. Lisa, do you see a corollary between the state that you're describing of sort of mm, detachment, objectivity, and sort of theological positions on transcendence, non-attachment, personal sovereignty? And if so, does that um, inspire in you a curiosity about the kind of uh, provenance of such notions in arcane theory and how they might have arrived at this knowledge without access to these machines of amplification, amplification that we've referenced? Yes, absolutely. So I think there's a real parallel um, between, for example, there's an easy parallel between what I'm talking about here and um, contemplative philosophy. Um, and, you know, this gets back to your question, actually, about the self, about selfhood. Hmm. There, there, there are two ways to answer the question. Um, so I, I, I want to answer the, 
the first sort of more conventional way. And then I want to, then I want to tell you a little story of just sort of like what I've been thinking, which answers the question a little differently. The, the conventional way of, of answering the question is to say in traditional, you probably know this better than I do, but in traditional Buddhist philosophy, like the Abhidharma, which is what the um, Dalai Lama practices, there's this notion that um, it's possible to get, it's possible to get, it's possible to cultivate an objectivity um, of your experience of the world by dissolving the illusion of the self. The idea being that, that, that you are a fixed person with a fixed set of properties in philosophy, Western philosophy, we would call it essentialism, that you have an essential, you have a set of essential features that describe you and um, that they always describe you no matter where you are um, and no matter what you're doing. Um, and a Buddhist, an Abhidharma, a, a Buddhist who, who, who subscribes to the Abhidharma view would say, that's a fiction. Um, and um, much about our lives are fictions. Our reputations are fictions. Um, the idea that we are a single um, self is a fiction. And this fiction and all the things that we grasp at um, to, um, to uh, bolster this fiction, like fame and fortune and jewels and, you know, makeup and all these things that we grasp at um, are really just interfering with our ability to experience, authentically experience the world as it is and, and our own experience. And so what we really want to do is kind of clear away those cobwebs and experience dharmas, which in the traditional Buddhist um, um, approach are these, they are the essential elements of experience. Um, like little, you can think of them like beads on a string sort of. Um, and the way to, do, one way to do this is to, to use meditation, for example, to use mindfulness meditation. So the, the example that I would give um, or that I give to people who are less familiar with it is I would say, okay, so here's a glass of water. And let's say that I wanted to paint this glass of water um, on a, a three-dimensional object on a two-dimensional canvas. What would I do? Well, if I just looked at the image three, in three dimensions, right, which is my brain is constructing this image in three dimensions, and I try to draw it on a two-dimensional canvas, I would get a pretty shitty-looking picture. <laughs> but if I look at this image and I try to deconstruct it into its most basic parts, like little pieces of light, so if we look at this, there are little pieces and anyone who's an artist will understand what I'm saying or anyone who's taken art lessons, right? That, you know, you can see little pieces of white and little pieces of blue and little pieces of cream and gray and various shades of gray and so on. And so if you take the little pieces, you train your eye to deconstruct this, really you're training your brain to deconstruct it. Then you, um, and you paint the pieces of light on the canvas, you're going to get a pretty decent looking three-dimensional object on that two-dimensional canvas, unless you're me, in which case it will still look pretty shitty <laughs> if you try that. But the point is that deconstructing an object into pieces of light is sort of like what in mindfulness meditation you're supposed to do when you're deconstructing um, 
your experience into dharmas, into these dharmas. And I, you know, found this really confusing, actually. Like, why would you, so, 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 I mean, in a sense, it's like saying there, there are little essences. They're just not what you think they are. They're just other little essences. And then this wonderful colleague that I have, um, whose name is John Dunn, who's a um, contemplative philosopher and historian, introduced me to the revised Buddhist approach. <laughs> There's a, you know, several centuries after Buddha, there is a revision of um, Buddhist philosophy by the, I guess, the guy who's most associated with this revision, his name is uh, Dharma Kirti, who came along and said, these dharmas, they're also actually constructed by the human mind. They're just how we use our knowledge, our concepts to make sense of sense data. And really what we need to do is go further than accessing dharmas. We, if we really want to be as objective as possible, um, we have to try to get to like sensations. Like that's the thing to do is to get to sensations. And that makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. Um, uh, you know, just in terms of, and so your question of like, how to, how does an observer who isn't a scientist um, discover this? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that exactly, Russell, because I think a lot of scientists don't, 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 um, don't discover this. I think it takes somebody who is super curious and somebody who's willing to not accept their own experience, no matter how compelling it seems, as evidence that this is how things are. And, and essentialism in particular, what I'm calling, you know, this Western way of viewing it, this idea of that things have essences, is really everywhere. And it's everywhere in Western science. I mean, not in physics, not in, in I mean, not in, um, you know, quantum mechanics, but it, that, that took like, I don't know how many, how many um, centuries um, for physicists to get to the, the point of, of um, ejecting essentialism. Um, you know, you, we could talk about biology and the struggles of essentialism there. We could talk about it in neuroscience and psychology. We could talk about it in the real world, like racism or sexism or any, any kind of discrimina discrimination or dimensions of discriminability. I mean, like, it's really something that humans ha have a lot of trouble with, I would say. Yes. And also, as I feel you alluded to, also in physics until quite re recently, because I suppose a molecular compound that is uh, can't be reduced any further is perhaps, this, you know, is a form of essentialism. I felt like this, um, a few things I want to say now, uh, Lisa, here they are. Like uh, when my daughter was born, the midwife said before her sensory development that she's trapped in this sort of, you know, she can't hear, she can't see, said the midwife. And, you know, of course, sensory sens you know, sensitivity will increase. And 
she was sitting over and was thinking as she was saying this that, that more data will become accessible but there's a limit to the range of data that will be accessible and we are obviously as adults still operating within this limitation not only sensory limitation but also the capacity to even receive information and comprehend it as for, to your model of you know representing a three-dimensional object in a two-dimensional space at least we have both of those reference to work with where there are sort of presumably beyond uh, it would be extraordinary if we were the recipients of the apex experience that would be extraordinary oh wow the amount of reality we're capable of seeing is the amount of reality there is that would be a simple reiteration of the scientific frontierism that has defined each new epoch of science I um also when you said that thing I can't remember quite how you termed it but I remember this uh, sensation I think you said I have this thing mostly garnered from my experience around addiction around where I say to people don't focus on the stimulus stimulus focus on the stimulation focus on what you are feeling don't think this thing is making me feel <laughs> these feelings focus on what you are like you know. so for me you know oh my stomach I'm feeling f in my stomach I, I would you know because of the limitations of language or whatever I would call it fear or maybe there you know maybe it's an instability in the abdomen there and like so from what little I know of anatomy I know that there's sort of there's, that's the sort of the, there's a nexus of you know the vega nerve or whatever's going on there and then like you know I feel tightness in my chest and heart and I know there are neurological cells there and I, you know I'm sure there's a lot happening with respiration and how that interacts with consciousness you know still though oddly this ability to create taxonomies to conceptualize uh you know essentialism i wonder if this model of essentialism is problematic perhaps because of how it suggests uh, uniqueness individualism and separation and my own sort of you know i'll call them what they are religious beliefs is that, that there is a sort of an underlying oneness experiencing itself in the words of the comedian bill hicks subjectively that there is an underlying oneness and because of sort of psychologically disruptive experiences i've had whether they're you know trauma drug use particularly hallucinogens or spiritual experiences around you know sort of with meditation or like sort of strong breath work i've had these sensations of the suspension of the egoic individualized side um, um, mind like that feels to me like exactly what you're describing recollection meets stimulant etc um and this sort of this unspace this unspace transcendent of semiotics that is still accessible to me uh vibrant nothingness obviously i won't be able to use these sort of terms in this but when i come back i sort of process it etc i i wonder what your views are on um god consciousness the potential for non-local consciousness versus the certainty that there is no such thing as non-local consciousness the idea of the brain as a sort of a receiver rather than a generator and uh and sort of god but god in in, in the terms that i've just described meaning broadly speaking a principle of oneness and and love but even love as a sort of an, an appetite for oneness an appetite for union a drive towards oneness Um, there's so much for me to grasp onto, um, and, and elaborate on. It's hard to know where to, um, start. Um, I know. that's what I feel when you're talking, Lisa, if you must know. Well, 
that's the makings of a really good conversation that could probably go for hours from my perspective. So, but I want to try to respond. There's some, I'm okay. So let me say a, a couple of things. First of all, um, recently I wrote a little book of essays and I was really, yeah, I was really motivated to use, there it is, yeah. Seven and a half lessons about the brain by Lisa yeah. Feldman Barrett. That's who you are. That is who, that is who I am. But you know, you're never a self by yourself. So that I, I the, who there, you know, who that person is, is partially determined by everybody else uh, who I'm interacting with. Um, let me say that um, one of the really interesting, to me, interesting questions I started with was why do we even have a brain? Like what it's a really metabolically expensive organ, that three pound blob between your ears, like the most expensive organ you have metabolically. So why do we have it? What's it good for? And why did they evolve in the first place? And the answer to that question, Russell, I think, or one answer to that question, I think touches on some of these, these other observations that you're making. So if we go back to a time in the Earth's history when there were animals who didn't have brains, and in fact, there still are animals who don't have brains. These animals are amazing, actually, because, you know, there's this little, the animal that I chose to write about, this little amphioxus, it's like very small. It, lo it looks like a little worm until you look really closely and you can see it has little gill slits. So it's, it's sort of a, you know, it's, it's before there were fish even. And it's, its environment, its niche hasn't changed very much in, you know, 500 million years. So it hasn't changed very much either. And what's really neat about these animals is that they can't see, they don't have eyes, they can't hear, they don't have ears, they can't smell. They have very, very, very rudimentary senses. So there's like a, what's called an eye spot, which are some cells that let it detect light and dark. So that it can have a circadian rhythm, like it, you know, of, of energy regulation throughout the day. And also, I suppose if there's a predator, well, actually there were no predators at this time. I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. These, these animals also didn't prey on each other. They, they mostly just filter, were filter feeders. They didn't really hunt in any sense because they didn't actually have senses. <laughs> they didn't really know they had a world around them, right? So they, they had really, really, um, rudimentary sense of touch. So if something touched them, they could react to it, actually literally touch their body. But this gets me to this really important point, And that is these animals could move under their own steam. That means they had multiple cells that had to be coordinated with each other so they could move. That meant there's sort of an internal coordination system in these animals. It's really simplistic and simple, but it's there. And so in order for the animal to know what light and dark means, it has to know to some extent whether those changes in sensation were derived from its own movement or from something outside of it that perturbed it, right? So if something touches it, is it because it just planted itself in the sand somewhere or is it because something else touched it like a blade of grass? 
It had to be able to make the distinction between me, not me, not in a sophisticated way, but the nervous system had to have a way of, of resolving that in order to know what those sense data mean in, not in any semantic way or, or complicated way, but just like in, meaning is action. Action is meaning. What do I, what does the animal do in response to this, you know, change? So what this means is that the animal, to use um, the philosopher uh, uh, Peter uh, Godfrey Smith's uh, phrase, it means the animal has um, a presence or a sense of subjectivity in its stance on the world because in the animal's nervous system can distinguish between, even though it has very few senses, it can distinguish between sensory changes that occur because the animal itself moved or did something versus sensory changes that occur because something in the world happened. And so an analogy for us would be if you move your eyes from left to right, so you look to the left and you look to the right, look to the left and look to the right, does the world change? Does the world, sh does, I mean, like, is there a big blur or does the world seem st stable and you're just viewing it? stable right now take your finger and poke your eye gently just poke your eyeball gently does the world does the image move looks like blurry and the world should be like like moving and yeah what's the difference there the difference is that when you volitionally uh, with volition move your eyes from left to right called the saccade your brain is since you, when you're, the signals that your brain uses to make those muscle movements, it's taking account of that and canceling out the sensory changes so that you're, you see a stable world. Yes, when you come it's and you, harmonic. When you, yes, that's actually a good way to say it. When you, um, um, it actually does have to do with oscillate, oscill neural oscillations. When you poke your eye, however, something external has you disrupted. Know, disrupted it. And so your brain hasn't had the opportunity to cancel out that sensory data. And so you experience it, right? So your brain has to have a way of doing this me, not me distinction, just like the amphioxus. Now the amphioxus has a really simple nervous system, no heart, no lungs. It's got like, like no brain and no senses, very few senses and a really, really simple body. And it, but it's doing this me, not me thing. Now, imagine an animal now um, that has eyes. Now the animal can look very far away, can see something very far away, which could perturb it. Actually, so let me, let me back up and I, I missed one step. So when something perturbs the, the amphioxus from the outside world, like something pokes it or, or there's light, you know, that, like a looming darkness, even though the, the animal doesn't have a really good set of external senses, that internal coordination is disrupted. And though it's so you sort of get this external sense for free. You don't know, the animal doesn't know what disrupted it or what to do about it necessarily. It just knows something has changed in the outside world that it has to respond to. But the outside world for that animal is very close to, you know, something looming over it or something touching it. Now, if you have taken an animal with eyes, something very distant from the animal can actually disrupt its internal coordination system. And if you have ears or, 
you know, really sophisticated somatosensory system like we do, which derives, it's called a lateral line system in fish. That's where our sense of touch um, comes from. Um, and actually, that's where our cochleas come from, that lateral line system. In the water where we evolved millions of years ago, touch was a, a distant sense because it, vibrations in the water would tell you, like what a shark uses sort of, you know, tells you that something's going on at a distance from you that is disrupting you internally. That means something important might be happening in the outside world that you need to care about. Uh. So the minute you start getting these distant senses, now lots of things can disrupt you internally. And we have a really sophisticated set of internal systems that have to be coordinated and that can be disrupted. So when you feel like shit, you're feeling like shit because there's some disruption of the internal systems of your body that your brain is modeling as discomfort. And the thing is that that discomfort can come from all kinds of places. It can come from not sleeping enough. It can come from not eating well. It can come from not being hydrated. It can come from somebody saying something to you, um, you know, uh, that, um, you know, is not nice or threatening, that can feel threatening to you. It can come from you seeing something at a distance. It can come from you imagining something. And then there are all kinds of things that can disrupt your internal coordination of your internal systems. And your brain has to, that's what your brain has to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. And so it's because affect is always there, sometimes we experience affect as a property of our own experience. Like, I, this is a delicious drink. You're an interesting person. That's a beautiful painting, right? It's our affect embedded in the perception of the thing. Or that guy who just cut me off on the highway is an asshole, right? That's your affect embedded in the perception of a person, right? But then there are times you own it. Like, I like you. I like that. This is, you know, um, I'm enjoying this. I'm, I'm not liking this, right? This makes me angry. These are times when you own your affect as part of your experience. The fact is, affect is always there. It's always there because it comes from the disruptions or the synchrony of this really complicated set of systems in your body that your brain is trying to manage. And your brain is constraining. Your brain is basically modeling the state of your body and your body is sending information back to the brain that constrains or instructs that model. That's the way to think about it. So the, the discomfort that you feel, like for example, if you feel a tug in your chest, your brain has to guess what that is. Is that anxiety? Is that you ate too much for dinner? Is that the beginning of a heart attack? I mean, what I'm seriously saying is that your brain doesn't know, it has to guess. And the number of people who have died from heart attacks because they guessed and their physician guessed wrong is, is astonishing actually, right? Particularly for women. Um, you know, you go to the doctor, you go to, and you say, I'm having this like persistent tightness in my chest. And the doctor says, you're anxious. Just go, go to a therapist. You're anxious. Um, you go to the emergency room and you're like, I have a tightness in my chest. And the emergency room, you know, physician will ask you all kinds of questions. And then 
say, oh, no, you're just anxious and send you home. The number of women who die from heart attacks over the age of 65 um, because they were misdiagnosed with anxiety when, in fact, what they had was the beginnings of um, uh, a cardiac event, you might, you, you know, it's shocking, actually. I mean, I actually personally know three people, two of whom died, and one didn't because he um, ended up having a massive heart attack in the emergency room. Um, you're getting right now. You're getting really anxious. Like that is too much anxiety. Calm down. Look what you're doing. You're causing your ventricles to fluctuate. Um, My point is that. You know, can I just say that? I, anyways, the thing I want to say is that. Um, that when you have mystical experiences, when you um, have experiences that are outside of everyday, the kind of the the kind of envelope of everyday experiences that we typically have, it's it's because the there's some kind of constraint that's been removed from the way the brain is kind of running this model. Okay, so for example, um, has it ever, have you ever wondered why, like when you're watching movies um, of, and they include like, like maybe it's like a, you know, maybe a um, science fiction movie, all the aliens tend to kind of look like humanoid in some way. Like, why is that? And the answer is because your brain, when your brain is um, like running this model, it's using the past in order to predict the future which becomes your present it's it's um it's weeding out all of the potential memories that won't make much sense and it's kind of doing this like automatically when you're awake and part of what part of what creativity is is relaxing that and when you go to sleep it's relaxed a little bit some of those control systems really are tuned down so you can have like really interesting dreams you know, where you can fly, for example, like, for example, when I fly in my dreams, I'm always faster when I'm flying on my back than when I'm flying on my front. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. But it is an experience I'm very familiar with in my dreams. Of course, I've never actually flown. And so what my brain is doing is it's using bits and pieces of past experience to construct a, mo you know, an, a representation, which is part of that model right, that I'm talking about, using past experience. It's exactly the same thing as it, what it does in the day, except some of the things it's putting together are, are not weeded out. When you take psychedelics, well, let me just back up and say, when you're asleep, part of what's controlling the brain's, you know, reinstatement of memory is relaxed, but part of it's still there because your brain is still attached to your body and your body is still constraining your brain. But when you yes. take psychedelics, that's sort of, you know, relaxed a bit more. And then you can have even wilder experiences that are outside the envelope of what is typical because they're not being, they're not being, they're not being constrained. Except for con uh, a continuity of uh, archetypes and recognizable symbols, patterns. I was thinking while you were talking, Lisa, about this sort of a, a satisfactory definition of intelligence being, um, you know, an ability to observe and identify patterns. It's a, I like this because I think you can apply that to sport yeah. or anything, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I was thinking too. I was thinking too of uh, that. Uh, you know, the numerous experiments to sort of uh, analyze or at least as best as possible, observe neutrinos and weakly interacting massive particles and the requirement that they're conducted subterraneously in order that the molecular noise of ordinary life be somewhat restricted to create an environment where you can observe uh, a subtler reality without the interference of, in this case, molecular noise, but I would say on a psychological level, potentially cultural noise, uh, conceptual noise, semantic and syntactic grammatical noise and uh, I think too that in all likelihood the uh, intelligence and in the sort of ability to harness and utilize consciousness that uh, has uh, evolved harmoniously with our environment is likely still closer to the beguiled and slithering creature in the darkness sensing light, light sensing light on a spot on its back than the potential mind the potential mind of god given um, you know what we are beginning to observe if not understand in the quantum world beginning what uh, uh, considering what we speculate might be happening cosmically the the, the limitlessness of the cosmos so i suppose what i'm saying is is that even these cultural and scientific materialist rationalist models that we create are so inhibited that we i believe need to leave the door open to the mystery and, and the way that in scientism which i'm certainly not accusing you or carlo Rovelli or any of sort of the great contributors to narrativizing complex scientific data into you know into forms that i can appreciate uh, but like but i but i feel perhaps politically biopolitically um, we are seeing materialism used to prevent new models being imagined uh, their maintenance of hegemony their inability to acknowledge a necessary fluidity to society their an unwillingness to note and make changes on the on the observable um, uh, around the observable problems that centralization creates whether that's uh, at the level of a state government or uh, trans uh, transnational corporations and i feel that the way that the position we have to have science in culturally is one of great humility uh, and uh, a recognizing that we are closer to that little creature with the gills than any true potential consciousness of any even if that creative force is environment in harmony with appetite and all of the expressions of appetite that the animal and botanical kingdoms uh, represent you know, because I feel otherwise there is this kind of uh, special, if that's the right word, supremacism, like being enacted upon the world and on reality and, and on individual humans in ways that are sort of being somewhat discussed now and sort of like around sort of, you know, identity politics. But I feel that that simply doesn't go far enough and, and has at its heart a great paradox, you know, given some of the things you said earlier about the constructed nature of our individual identity and the further fetishization of that is just another form of this individualism, a last fanfare of this dying idea that we're material, separate individuals. I, I just want to say I love the phrase and I, I'm, I, I'll attribute it to you, but I'm going to use it later. I just love this phrase, like environment in harmony with appetite. That's like a that's a very good phrase. Um, Thank you. Um, so there's a book 
that was written by Richard Lewontin, the evolutionary biologist, um, in 1991 called Biology as Ideology. And in this book, he um, is making the point that our individualist, he's talking really about Western, Western science, really, Western biology. He's really, really only referring to biology, but I think, you know, you could certainly throw psychology and neuroscience in there as well. Um, He's basically saying that science has this, you know, individualist ideology that it's using that is constraining our understanding, our proper understanding, a better understanding, a closer understanding of what's actually the, the way the way the world or the universe or the physical a way that physical nature actually is. And I found this to be a very um, illuminating book when I, the first time I read it, it's a book, it's one of the books that, um, you know, all of the members of my lab either reads or, you know, it's like when I have a PhD student who graduates, I give them a little library of books. And you might imagine that I'm giving them like a ton of neuroscience books, but really what I'm giving them mostly are philosophy books to read um, or history. And, um, and I want to give you a, I want to give you an example of um, what he means. And this is my example but I think it's an example that illustrates what he what he meant. So, you know, and let me just say, I don't think it's that hard actually to link an individualist perspective in science to the kind of individualism that you're talking about that you see also in economics and in, you know, culture writ large. That I, so, you know, we could go in that direction and we can talk about that, but it's not, it's the same set of assumptions, you know, um, that um, is underlying. Um, and that's, a, it's a cultural model. Not all cultures are this individualist, you know, but I mean, that's a, there are also writers, anthropologists in particular, who've written about, you know, how cultures organize themselves in how they understand how how they understand the relationships between people, for example. Um, and what we've seen, um, you know, um, I think in science is this real adoption of, of a strong um, individualist sort of um, set of assumptions that goes along with essentialism, that there are single, that there are underlying, you know, for lack of a better word, like immutable causes that make something, there's an underlying immutable cause that makes something what it is, and you can't change it, and it is what it is, and um, and it will be that way regardless of when and who and why and how. Like it's, you know, so an example is, you know, ha um, infection from a disease like COVID. Um, so this is the example. When I ask people, do you think a virus is the cause of a respiratory illness like the common cold? So this was like pre-COVID. Pre I would ask this question to audiences. And 99% of the people would put their hands up. 
yes, a virus is the cause. And then I would tell them about these experiments where really good experiments, really well designed, that replicated, where scientists would cloister away human subjects in hotel rooms and control what they slept, how they slept, what they ate, and so on. And then they would take exactly the same amount of dose of virus and put it into the nostril of each person. And only 20 to 40% of people, depending on the experiment, got sick with symptoms. So exposure to a virus is not the same thing as infection. And only 20 to 40% of people were infected. That means that a virus is not the cause of an illness. It is a necessary cause. You can't get sick. You can't get a common cold without a virus, but it is not the cause. Okay, what were the other predictors of who got sick? And they were things like childhood adversity a history of childhood adversity, or chronic stress, or these things that we think of as more psych psychological. We think of them as psychological. There is a, a sort of a, a metabolic underpinning to them, but we think of them as psychological. But anyways, the, the point is that what predicted who got sick was also the state of that person's immune system, which is regulated by their brain. And that means that the state of your immune system is also, and, and your brain is, are also necessary, but not sufficient causes of illness. Now, I was president of the Association for Psychological Science, which is like the big, you know, uh, the big scientific you know, society that, you know, and so I wanted to bring this to people's attention because what it means, it means a couple of things. One is that people who are experiencing chronic stress, particularly people living in adverse circumstances are going to be just, they're more likely going to be to get sick um, after exposure. They, they'll probably be more likely to be exposed too, but they'll be more likely to get sick from exposure. And the same things that predict um, whether you get sick also predict your immune response to a vaccination. Are we okay? Do we need to take a break? No, I just want to ask you if you think this means that another way of dealing with a pandemic would be to address these collaborating factors that create infection and ergo potentially a well, pandemic. Yes, exactly. And I want to say that, but it gets to your point about, our, you know, it gets to your point about are there it gets to the point about looking for individual causes versus more system based like relational um causes and i guess but you know that like illness is not a sim doesn't have a simple single cause there are a set of a set of you know like a like a web or a network of potential causes that are all working together and the point, my point is that um, who gets sick isn't just a matter of who's exposed or what the viral load is. It's also a matter of that person's personal history, some of which is based on where they live, what access did they have to medical care, 
Were, did they live in poverty? Do they have, you know, um, the ability to get fresh food or or fresh air or or what have you? And to further politicize this, if I may, Lisa, we only contemplate, consider and uh, analyze solutions that are economically beneficial to uh, and uh, we only present certain outcomes as favorable. No, instead no, of we like, don't, no, we don't even do that, though, Russell. That's the totally infuriating thing about it is that we don't even do that, because can I tell you something? The National Academy of Sciences did a study. They did like a big white, the big, like a big study of childhood poverty. And they discovered that it would be cheaper to just eradicate. I mean, it would be expensive to eradicate poverty for children, but it would be cheaper to do that than it would be to deal with the consequences of that poverty, the way that it shapes the nervous system and the brain in those children, which sets them up for illness later in life. We still end up paying that bill. It's just a much bigger bill. It's and just there's more... more suffering. So if it's not economically led, it's ideologically led. And it's sort of, in a sense, that speaks to some of the points that I'm making, that, that, that it's more favorable to have a solution that facilitates big tech having more access to people's lives and more access to track and trace data. It, our systems favor a solution where big pharma gets to benefit and profit. These are the systems that we're heading towards. And what are these systems based on? Individualism. You are a separate animal running on these systems, what you can remember, what stimulus you... So Whereas, so what we need to devise is a kind of a scientifically underwritten myth that brings to the forefront collectivism, unity, togetherness, reverence and respect for individual forms of identity. But unless these myths are told, unless these stories are told, Lisa, we're in grave danger of, uh, well, we're on the precipice of Armageddon, but the coronavirus is just but one example of how something that's apparently an objective reality, like you said earlier, you know, all the coronavirus is seeking is a nice wet pair of lungs, but whose wet lungs, how many times, how often? Because otherwise, why is there a difference in what's happening in New Zealand or Taiwan or the US or the UK? or Germany. Culture, 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 culture. So there's so many things. No objective reality. We create reality through our imagination. Yeah, well, with our, through our collective imagination. That's, the, that's the, also the important thing. That This is something, I mean, this is something that I wrote about in my first book, How Emotions Are Made. Um, but because it was a book about emotion, some of the bigger points got lost. Um, and so I decided to kind of re reiterate them in this smaller book and also maybe sort of gently maybe take my lab coat off a little bit at times and, um, and you know, maybe just try to ask people to think about what the implications are of some of these things. And, you know, for example, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a number of years ago now Um based on this um, this research showing that um, words, words, just just simple words, actually have a huge impact on your nervous system. And um, I was being a little provocative, you know, in the op-ed, deliberately provocative to get people to think because that's what, you know, that's what that's what you do sometimes when you're a professor, you, sort of say things that are slightly provocative to get people to think maybe in a bit of a different way. Um, not that you want them to think anything in particular, but you just want them to th think differently, like just get outside your, your usual way of thinking and just explore other ways of thinking a little bit. But can I tell you that the idea that we have 
that our nervous systems are socially dependent on each other. We are social animals. We evolved as creatures to influence each other's nervous systems in very profound ways. Other animals influence one another, you know, with sights and smells and sounds and so on. We do that, but we also do it with words. You can read something that was written 2000 years ago and it can change your heart rate and change your breathing. I can text three little words to my friend who lives halfway around the world. She doesn't have to see my face. She doesn't have to hear my voice, but I can change her metabolism with those three little words, right? We have language, the parts of the brain that are involved in us speaking and understanding language are exactly the same parts of the brain that regulate your heart, your lungs, your immune system, and so on. So we have these socially dependent nervous systems, but we live in a culture that prizes individual rights and freedoms. That's a bit of a conflict. And it's a bit of a conflict that is worth having some discussion about, particularly when we find ourselves living in an environment and even maybe cultivating that environment of like cultural brutality where people just say the most outrageous things to each other without thinking about the impact that those words will have, right? It's fine to have freedom to say what you want to say, but you also have to think about what the impact is of what you say. And, but can I just say the amount of pushback that I got from that required two police uh, forces to like, patrol my lab, patrol my office, patrol my house, you know? I mean, it was really stunning. Why, free speech? Yeah, they thought, people thought that I was saying that there should be no free, there should be limits to free speech, and that's not what I was saying at all, actually. What do you think about the MAGA hat kid? Is this something you've sort of spoken about before? The kid wearing the MAGA hat, confronting the indigenous man, and, uh, you know, people said he's smirking. Uh, he's wearing a MAGA hat, he's smirking. Big scandal in shoes, kid ends up winning $275 million from CNN. I ask you simply because what was being said was, he's smirking, he's smirking at that man. It was an interpretation of an emotion and a pejorative one because of the MAGA hat, presumably. And the results of this are now sort of, you know, how, I'm interested as well in the way that the, the sort of culture war is playing out in, in our sort of uh, emotional yeah, lives. Because it's a, politics say, is emotion I'll, now. Yeah, so I'll just adjust your description slightly, just the terms of what you said, because I would say it, I understand what you're saying, but I would say it slightly differently. What I would say is they didn't interpret an emotion, they interpret a facial movement. Right, yeah, yes. So... You know, and infer, and th that and was infer, implicit of an emotion. Exactly, they inferred an emotional meaning to a facial movement, and the point I, that I want to make, and I've actually published quite a bit on this topic, um, and that is that um, nobody reads anybody else's face. Nobody reads anybody else's body postures. Faces and bodies are not a language to be read. We are inferring the meaning of movements just in the way that we talked about um, at the beginning of our chat. We are inferring the meaning. Our brains are automatically inferring the meaning. So a scowl or a smirk can mean many things, right? A smirk can mean happiness. It can mean contempt. It can mean fear. It can mean anger. It can mean many things. And actually, you know, the... If you look at the evidence 
like the actual scientific evidence, what you see is that, for example, people scowl about 30% of the time when they're angry. That's the, the stereotype of the supposed expression, the universal expression of anger is to scowl. So people scowl about 30% of the time. That's more than chance. So that gets you like a paper in a good journal, scientific journal, you know. Um, but what that means is that 70% of the time, people are doing something else that's really meaningful with their faces when, they, when they're angry. They might cry. They might widen their eyes. They might smile or smirk. They might even, you know, sit very still and plot the demise of their enemy. They can do many things. And that's what scientists call low reliability. Similarly, people scowl when they're not angry. They scowl when they're confused. They scowl when they're concentrating really hard. My husband, when he's concentrating really hard, makes a full facial scowl. Like it's just like that's the Western stereotype that people think is universal. It's It still startles me sometimes. We've been married for more than 25 years and I study this for a living and it still startles me sometimes. And when I first met him and I went to, I talked to my lab and I, uh, my, like the folks in my lab and I said, this guy, like he's great, but Jesus Christ, he scowls sometimes. It scares the shit out of me. And they're like, Lisa, you scowl when you're concentrating too. It took us a while to learn that. We hated lab meetings until we realized, oh no, she's just concentrating on what we're saying. She doesn't hate it. She's just concentrating. And I was like, seriously? Like I had no awareness that I'd do this. People scowl when they have gas. People scowl for all kinds of reasons. You have to be humble and you have to be humble about the inferences that you make. No matter how much you believe, you're confident that you're in your ability to read people, your brain is just guessing and you can guess wrong. And I have no idea what that kid thought or didn't think, but the way, the way that people were writing about it and making inferences that they felt very, very certain about is really problematic. It's just really, there's really no scientific evidence that allows us to say um, that um, we can read uh, someone's um, emotion, emotional intent from their facial movements. It's like there was some excitement to reach that conclusion. Like this is the conclusion we would like to reach. This is, this would be good if this image meant this the hat, the native person that is a white male person. So like in this instance, it's too exciting in the content, in the, in the friction around that moment to resist that. And in a sense that that is a challenge not to like, in a sense, it's, a, it's a, the, the principles you're describing are transcendent of political bias because wherever you are on the political spectrum, you'd say, well, I don't know what other people are thinking and I would afford them the ability to communicate beyond what, you know, like I know that Malcolm Gladwell gave a quote for your book and he's written a whole book on, our, you know, that, that there are not the kind of universals we imagine around facial expression and the, and the, and the yes, and he, from... and he cites my book and my papers in his book about that topic. I mean, that is... Um, not the only thing we study, but it's one large portion of what my lab had spent a lot of time on for, for some years, actually.
It's fantastic to speak with you and listen with you. I have to wrap up now. Um, you've been very, very generous with your time. I'm very excited to read the rest of your book. I could talk to you and learn from you a lot, I feel. I'm really grateful to you, Lisa. I hope and let me dare to say it, pray that your student will be well. And uh, I've really enjoyed your time. And I hope I get to speak with you again because I really felt like I was getting a strong download. <laughs> Well, this was really, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be on your podcast and to have the chance to talk with you. I'd love to talk with you again. Um, I will definitely pass on um, the sentiments to um, this, to our student. Um, yes. Uh, um, but um, yeah, I think this was, this was really, really fun. And uh, you gave me a lot to think about actually. No way. Your, yeah. Some of your phrasing too is just really um really good it's really it's lyrical but in this way you know um science communication is a challenging thing because you you know you you have to know what to leave out and you and still have what you say be valid but also say things in a a more maybe poetic or lyrical way that gets people to think and um you know, you you have some turns of phrase that are just really. It's very thought. It's you, I've I have a whole set of notes here that I've been no taking way. as you've been talking. So you're so kind. There must be a science to the melodics of language. There must be something must be happening that can be understood, analyzed. And for me, it is my acceptance that there is a, an in, a, beyond an intelligence, a consciousness beyond our appreciation that um, I feel is a guiding principle. I don't know quite how to mobilize it yet, but I know, you know that it's what's required. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a physiologist, his name is um, Scott Turner or Turner Scott. What is it? It's one or the other. It's, um, it's got to be Scott Turner. Turner. Scott Turner. Can't have Turner Scott as a name. It's like, a, it's like you're taking the piss. And um, he, the book that I would recommend that you have a look at, which I think you will really like, is um, called um, The Tinkerer's Accomplice. And it's really about how, um, it's really about how animals are, you know, they kind of use their environment. The environment is part of their, um, is part of who they are, basically. Yeah. Um, so the analogy would be one way to think, uh, Russell, about this conversation over the last hour is that, you know, I'm one person and you're another person. And these were two people having a conversation, two, two, two entities having conversation. But another way to think about it is that the organism understands you know, over the last hour was the two of us. And we were, the signals we were sending back and forth were mostly words because we're far apart and we're not in the same room. But if we'd been in the same room, then maybe our breathing would have synchronized and maybe our heart rates would have synchronized. Maybe our actions would have started to mirror each other to some extent, because that's what happens when two people, even who truly don't know each other, um, that's what happens when... Um, they are really communicating well and trusting each other and learning from each other and so on. The, the point is that we, you know, the point that, that, you know, Turner is a physiologist. He's not talking about that. He's talking about things like 
termite mounds and how, you know, termites build mounds that help them regulate their, their respiration and temperature, you know, um, that, that they're basically acting on the world in a way that um, allows them to um, regulate themselves and each other. Um, and they're using the world as a tool to do that. Um, and so you can think about the world as an extended part of the animal's body, essentially. Um, but, you know, it is possible for us to play around with those boundaries to some extent. And it sounds like that's something that you're interested. I mean, you can do that scientifically. I mean, you've been maybe doing it more in your thinking about spiritual matters. But I think scientifically, it's also possible to play around with those boundaries some. And anyways, yeah. I would just suggest you have a look at that book. I, I, it was recommended to me. Um, by a, a neuroscientist who I I respect very much, and it's it was really eye opening. Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you for that recommendation. I'll take you up on that, and I hope we get to communicate in podcasts again, and maybe in a live space where we could be on a stage and I could interview you, and our hearts could harmonise, and I could perhaps torment you more. That would be fun. <laughs> I would look forward to it. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Well, thank you for listening under the skin with Lisa Feldman Barrett. I hope you learned a lot. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. My Audible original revelation is out now. If you saw me on uh, Jimmy Fallon, it's quite hard being on Jimmy Fallon because I could hear my own voice being repeated back in my own mind. I don't mind hearing my own voice, but just once. Yeah, there was latency. It was a delay and it was like affecting my ability to be nimble psychologically and uh, my verbal dexterity was impeded by the stumble of hearing my own words reverberate back at me. by him to... Yes. So he's always the me. best. Sabotage. Yeah. What? He's trying to throw you off, mate. Yeah. Although Fallon is a kind man. You can tell that there's a deep kindness in his heart just by God. He's And he's funny. He sets you up for jokes. That's the most generous thing you could do. I remember when I used to do chat shows, no setting up for jokes. That was the problem. I'm just sort of thinking, oh, this chat show, I should be the guest. And there was problems with that. So get my Audible original, Revelation. Go to russellbrand.com, join that community. I've told you about that. If you enjoyed this episode, go and listen to Prom Professor Tom Oliver. What did he do? He talked about the science of interconnectivity. You're making it up. I'm not. Man. Or Dr. John Hagelin. What did he Meditation. do? Meditation. And quantum physics. Yeah. And keep checking my YouTube channel for new videos. Thank you for listening too. I think you believe I work on this show. <laughs> Why don't we have a nice outro sting? What would it be? Oh, like Produced by Jenny Mason. No, yeah. no, God, no. That, that's a kick up the arse on the way out the door, isn't it? <laughs> For people who've just put their time and money into a lovely what little product. What do you product. want to say as your outfit? Thank you very much for listening Under the Skin, only from Luminary with me, Russell Brand. Okay. But Badly produced. So, is that a sting? Yeah, like the sting could be badly produced. <laughs> Goodbye. Is this Goodbye. Like that. Okay. And then you hear it and then that's the end. Okay. Great.